Well, we are uh, in clearly a time where the weary world is very present and very, very, very weary. So how can we say the weary world rejoices? Why would we do a series where we say, we're going to rejoice? Because we're going to rejoice, and we're going to show you how to rejoice in the midst of being weary. Uh, a couple of months, maybe a few months ago, we did a, a church-wide survey to just see how are we doing in the midst of COVID. And uh, it was interesting. To, uh, we had all sorts of information. I gave a lot of that, those details out. But um, another piece that I haven't shared with you was uh, the worries that we're carrying right now as a church. And I was surprised by the worries that we laid out. I expected that our top worry would maybe be financial, crisis of faith, but those were not at the top. You know what was at the top of our worries as a church right now? Mental health. And so I started doing a little bit of research on mental health and trying to figure out where are we at and how do we deal with a pandemic together and uh, knowing that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our minds matter. And I want to share with you, uh, it'll be on the screen briefly, and I'll just show it to you here as well. These are the phases of a disaster. When, when you go through a crisis, this comes from uh, mental health experts. They describe what happens in the different phases of a crisis. And so I've taken what's on that, and I just illustrated it here just to kind of show it so I can get a little more close to it here. But this is where we were back in, well, at this time last year, and in January and February of last year. And this is called the pre-disaster phase. And through all of this time, you're just kind of going through life. And then you come into a time where you know there's a threat, and you know there's a little bit of anxiety, you know something is changing, and then you have impact. And that was uh, in mid-March of last year, and we all knew it. This is changing everything. For me, it was when the NCAA canceled the Final Four. It's like, no! Oh, that's so much fun usually. And, and impact. Then it's called actually the heroic phase. The heroic phase is where we all gather together and we say, we are not going to let this pandemic destroy us. This crisis is not going to own us. And you now rise to the, equa- the, to the occasion. And we did that as a church. We did Be the Church, and man, did we come out in droves of just blessing people in different ways. In socially distanced ways, we figured out how to be heroic during this time. But then you hit what they call as the honeymoon phase, where you've just, you've like hit the peak and you kind of figure, this is great. We actually have controlled this pandemic. We've handled this crisis well, and you have peace of mind. And then reality sets in as we by week goes by and month by month goes by, you come into the the downward spiral of, I'm not okay. I'm not at peace. I have incredible anxiety and pressure on me right now. I hate Zoom. I can't stand to look at people in two dimensions. I can't stand wearing masks, whatever it is. You have all sorts of crisis. and, And this is called the disillusionment phase where you have just bottomed out, and then you're okay for a day, then you're bottomed out again, and you have all these trigger events down here that just continue to just sabotage the joy that you're trying to go after. You try to get some peace, some mental health, some stability in your life, but this disillusionment just kind of wears in. 
mental health experts say, then we hit the anniversary date. You come to the, the about a, typically a year of, you just go through this kind of a cycle, and then you come into reconstruction. And I want to make the claim, where we're at right now, is very clearly disillusionment. This is where we're at. And this is why we feel like a weary world. But this is why we're going after how to rejoice in the midst of it. Because we figured it out back here. But how do we figure it out when you're in disillusionment? I want to rename what they call reconstruction. I want to rename it for what I'm going to teach you today and what we're going to read. We're going to read a very familiar passage. One of the reasons we really came after A Weary World Rejoices in our study was, let's just study the core scriptures of the Christmas story and understand the core characters. And so you'll not hear, most likely most of you, online and in person, you won't hear verses you've not heard before. But I'm going to give them to you from a way that is redefined through the word hope. That's what this is. Because without hope, you can't get through disillusionment. Without hope, you can't wake up each day saying, I'm going to fight another day. And so let's figure this out together as we go. Because as I study scripture, I've talked about this a little bit before, but a lot of times uh, people describe the Bible as, I read the Bible to learn how to live. But that's not why the scriptures were written. I've heard people say Bible stands, the B-I-B-L-E stands for basic instruction before leaving earth. And we get these cute quips on how to understand the world. And so you read the Bible to figure out how to live in this world. But that's not the purpose of the scriptures. The purpose of the scriptures are to show us who God is. And when you understand that, you read it through an entirely different lens. So today I want to read, again, a familiar passage. We heard some of it already today, and, and we're going to look at it from the lens of this incredible concept of hope by looking at three truths of what we learn about God because of this story. Last week, Pastor Paul took us into studying about Mary. Today, we're going to look at Joseph and his story and what we learn about God because of this very familiar story and the hope that it loads us with. And I'm, I'm just going to go verse by verse, starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Here we go. And uh, this first one gives us an example of what hope, and I'll just give you the, the big picture of this first point. We can hope today, because of what we're about to read, because Jesus is not afraid of our messes. Okay? I know you feel messy right now. I know your life doesn't feel stable in the midst of a lot of just confusion and what, will this vaccine work? And what if it doesn't? Will the stock market go crazy and, and mess up now that we've had some gains? What, what, you know, so you have a little bit of anxiety. And then the bigger anxiety of what happened at Thanksgiving? And will the super spreading truly happen? And will we truly have now funerals at Christmas time like people are throwing at us? And so this just weighs us down. It's messy. There's no way around it. And we disagree with one another and we have opinions that are so strong on, on all sorts of, of positions. You've got health scares and job stress. In light of that, I want to show you how Jesus is not afraid of your mess and my mess. Verse 18 of chapter 1, again in Matthew. 
This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful, uh, um, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now this is confusing because you read there and we hear these stories, we just read it and, and you go, okay, wait a minute, they were pledged to be married, but he was going to divorce her. Well, that's confusing. I don't understand. Well, again, we have to enter into the text and the culture of the text. And first century living was different than living here in the 21st century. I want to take you through really the three phases of marriage. As scholars have pieced it together, it makes a whole lot more sense when you understand the backstory of the marital story and how it plays out. And so there's three phases. The first phase is the engagement phase. This is the phase where parents actually typically, typically, I mean, there's always some anomalies. You're going to find some nuances, but traditionally the parents would arrange the marriage. And so they would discover, okay, I like that girl. I like that guy. And I would like to see them get together. So the parents get together and they start the conversation. And the engagement happens when there's a sense of an agreement between the families that this could be really a good thing. I know we mock it and we say, no way would I go for parental engagement or for arrangements in that way. But the divorce rate for those kinds of families is almost non-existent. I mean, parents get it. Like, I, I have some people in mind for my kids, and I think this would be great. Because parents have from a different vantage point. So we, don't, we shouldn't mock that culture, because even still to this day in the Middle East, there, is, there are pockets of parental arrangement, or arrangement still, and, it, and it, it works. So this is actually known as the engagement. And sometimes the bride and groom wouldn't even know each other before this happens. In the case of Mary and Joseph, we, we believe that they had some relationship and connection. But, I mean, you have, obviously, Joseph's family down in Bethlehem. And you have the Nazareth family, um, Mary from Nazareth. So that's quite a distance. And so there's a, a lot of backstory that I can't wait to hear someday that God may share with us. But other than that, it's speculation. So the engagement phase is far different than our engagement phase here in America. There's a second phase called betrothal. Betrothal is typically a one-year period of time where the, the boy and the girl get to know each other. This is actually the phase where you have the legal agreements made that this marriage is going to happen. This is when the marriage becomes legal. It is at the betrothal phase. There is no physical contact yet, so there's no intimacy physically at all. And during this time... Typically, the man goes to his home and prepares a place for his bride. And typically, he will come then at the time when it's getting close to the wedding, and he takes his bride, and he takes her to the place that he has prepared as he has added a room onto his family's home. That's tradition. You've probably heard that phrase before around the second coming of Christ. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to prepare the, uh, a room for you on the, many, the mansion uh, of the Lord, and, and I am going to come and take you. 
This image is wedding image. This is God coming after his bride through Jesus Christ. And it's an incredible image when you understand the backstory of marriage and how it plays out. The betrothal phase is, of, is legal and, and very significant. Uh, this is a time where you have uh, just uh, everything starts to make sense and it clicks. It's more of a mental time. Then you have the wedding. The wedding is where it now becomes very public and very official. During the wedding, now this is tricky for me because we are in orange, and so there's no kids stuff going on, and so our, there's some kids in the room, so I have to be careful with how I talk about this next part. part. Let me just say, at, during the wedding, there is a point at which the couple is married. And you have to ask the question, when is the couple married according to God? Is it when the priest now says, you may kiss the bride? Is it when they do their vows? Is it when the priest says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and everybody claps? That's what we're known for. This is not when people celebrate. Traditionally, it's when they go to the consecration tent. So I must be careful with what I say next. There is actually a tent that the best man and maid of honor will go, and they'll just kind of listen for the bride and groom to go to the consecration tent. And there, it's like a, let me say it this way, Genesis 1, they know each other at this point. Or in the dating game, if you've ever seen that TV show years ago, they make whoopee or whatever you want to call it. And this is the point at which the, the best man and maid of honor come out and they say, they are married. It is wonderful. It is celebration. And everybody's so excited. And the entire people then celebrate. They drink and be merry because the couple have now become one as God intended them to be one. Very interesting, isn't it? So why do I say Jesus is not afraid of our messes? Well, because what I just read to you is very messy. Because where they were engaged to be married legally was when? It wasn't during the wedding. It was during the betrothal, which is before they are to come together intimately. The betrothal is just a contract moment, and it is a time for celibacy. It's a time for great discovery of who you are as a couple apart from the physical intimacy. And so for Mary to wind up pregnant is extremely scandalous in that day. And so we have a mess on our hands. And in some ways God caused the mess. And you can say, what is this? This doesn't make any sense because God's not afraid of messes. God's not afraid of the chaos that can happen in this world. And so truly we have the Lord in this moment taking and handling this moment beautifully of saying, this isn't going to be a mess that I panic about. And so I think about your situation and I want you to realize that no matter what you feel right now, no matter what anxiety you're under, no matter what kind of mess you have, God is not afraid of your situation. The financial pressures, the health scares, the, the relational damage that maybe has been done during this time because living under one roof with certain types of people for a certain amount of time can be extremely, let's just say, not life-giving. And it's messy and you're hurt and you're scared and you're frustrated and you're like, I can't make it another day. Just know that God isn't afraid of messes. Just know that God can speak into your story just like we're going to see how he speaks into this story very loudly yet today. So let's go a little bit further as we go um, to the very next verse. 
The very next verse says it this way, uh, and what the, the description is, um, Jesus, first of all, is not afraid of your mess, but secondly, we can have hope and celebration today because Jesus is, uh, there is nothing impossible with Jesus. We learn because of the next part of the story, the very next couple of verses, that Jesus can overcome the impossible. And this is what's so phenomenal about our God. And so you look at your situation and say, what I'm facing right now feels impossible, the people at work, the, the way school is going, I can't dig myself out of this pain. I am in a mess. I'm in a world of hurt. But with Jesus, nothing is impossible. Look at how this plays out. The very next verse, verse 20. So Joseph is in a scandal. Joseph wants to just divorce her but during the betrothal time. Everybody knows they weren't supposed to be together uh, intimately, but they were. Uh, uh, so the rumors would have gone even though they weren't. Look at verse 20. So Joseph was thinking he was going to divorce her. But after he had considered this, God stepped in. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Why do I say Jesus can handle the impossible? Because Jesus was born from the Holy Spirit's creation. That's a miracle. How babies were made in the first century is exactly how the babies are made in the 21st century. And none of that occurred. But God intervened. When God intervenes, when God moves on a situation, that is a miracle. And I'm telling you, our God is a miracle-making and miracle-producing God. Time and time and time again. Not just the miraculous with the story of Jesus, but the miraculous with life all around us. That's why I follow Jesus Christ with my life, because the, the, think of the bookends of Jesus' life. He starts with a phenomenal miracle of being born of a virgin. And the miracle of death for three days and resurrection. The bookends of Jesus' life are astounding. And then you add all the miracles in between of his life. <laughs> An amazing life. I'm going to follow the guy who has that kind of DNA in his story. That has that kind of depth to his life. And I know it's easy to say, well, yeah, 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 I get that. That's the story of God. It better be filled with miracles. But what about me? What about my life? I feel insignificant. I feel like my life doesn't have as much flash or show. And does God really do miracles in this world? I could give you story after story after story after story after story of moments that I've prayed that I have just seen God, but God had to intervene for this miracle to happen. And I know you, you, you think, because where the struggle comes, especially in our culture today, is our longing for immediacy. Like, I want it to happen, and I want it to happen yesterday. And so I think our 
our lack of being able to delay gratification sabotages our ability to pray for the miracle. If the miracle doesn't happen today, we think, well, God clearly doesn't love me. God is not active in this world. God can't handle. I mean, you look at this chart that I just went through earlier and you think, wait a minute, a year of a crisis and and all this pain. Why doesn't God just intervene in the very beginning? Well, there's many reasons for that because God's timing is, is what we need to trust. And if you think about a, a situation that has just really gone south and a relationship that has just tumbled out of control, you realize that it took years to get into these bad habits, to get to a place where life just was really not healthy. Do you think that it's just going to change just like that when you've got all these other human elements at play? Meaning, God is a God who works with the time in which we live. I mean, for God to do a miracle in Egypt, 400 years. See, God looks for the perfect moment in time to do the miracle. But just because it hasn't happened yet, doesn't mean he isn't about to move. And isn't about to do a great miracle in your life. So my point is, keep hoping, keep praying, keep knowing that tomorrow could be the miracle day. So don't stop going after it. I had a a conversation a, a couple of months ago, actually earlier last month. And uh, I was moved by it. And I asked um, Ann Vanderwater if I could share her story publicly. And she said she'd be honored. And it, it, it just, it brought tears to my eyes and it filled my heart because it was a true miracle of God. For, for uh, 20 years, uh, her mom had had Alzheimer's. And it, it, my grandfather went through that in forms of dementia. And if you know anything about it, it is devastating. And it, it just sucks life out of family. Because you lose that person, but they're still physically there, but they're gone. And it can wear anybody out. And so she kept praying for a miracle and praying for a miracle. And what happened was, many, in many ways, the, the chart I showed you earlier of just the, the stages is just like more down than up. And it just seems like crisis after crisis. And, and it put a strain on her family. And it got to a point where in trying to make health decisions for their family... It put a terrible strain on their family and so much so that it, it caused uh, really the end of a relationship between her, her and her sister. And it was devastating. It, her sister was one of her best friends and, and they just, it, it came to nothing and it was just done. And the strain was so deep and dark and painful and she didn't, she kept praying, God, just reco- help, it to, help us to recover, help us to recover. God, bring a miracle. And, and the miracle, year after year after year, no miracle, no, no resurrection. God, where are you? But she stayed faithful and she kept hoping and she kept trusting, saying, God, you're the miracle worker. You're the one who's gonna bring the impossible to be possible. Please, God, bring it. Last month, God just gave her a prompting. The time is now. Write her a note. And her note was not long and filled with all this waxing of pose. It was simply, I just miss and I just want my sister back. I just want my sister back. And her heart, her sister's heart was apparently now ready. And the relationship not only recovered, but it's blossomed. And and just with tears in her eyes was just like, oh. God is such a miracle-working God. God is the God who brings resurrection. But our problem is, is if it doesn't happen today, if the pandemic continues to go on, even post-vaccines, I mean, what is that? Well, 
That's what hope is all about. That's what the story of Joseph is all about. There's all this chaos all around, but we have a God who can bring a a child out of a virgin. We have a God who brings resurrection out of death. We have a God who brings life in places where there is no life. There is light in the midst of darkness. We serve a God who is the impossible. Takes the impossible and makes it so possible. And that is what we celebrate today. And that's what gives me hope. And that's why a weary world can rejoice. Because we serve a God who's loaded, loaded with life to make the possible, to make the impossible so very possible. And so I don't know what you're praying for. If it's a physical miracle, keep praying. If it's a relational miracle, if it's a spiritual miracle and you're just praying for your child to know Jesus Christ, that day is going to come. Just keep praying faithfully. Keep praying faithfully because our God goes after the impossible. He's proven it time and time again. And the third thing that we learn in, about God in the Joseph story is that the reason we can have hope is because the third thing, Jesus always keeps his promises. That's why I say you can hang on another day. You can hang on through another season. Jesus always keeps his promises. There are 70 different times roughly in the Old Testament where God promised that I will bring the Messiah and year after year, imagine 400 years go by and they're, they're, God is silent during this time. And where is God? Why isn't he bringing a miracle? I don't understand. He doesn't keep his promises, apparently. Well, look at this. The very next verse, verse 22, again of Matthew 1. All of this took place. Uh, the, even the, the Joseph panic, the messes of that, the miracle of Jesus being born in, uh, into a virgin. Uh, the, the, that's total miracle. All of this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. In other words, I made a promise years ago. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Did you see those opening words of verse 22 there? All of this took place. All of these years went by. All of these promises were made. All of this time of of chaos, all of this took place through the prophet so that in the perfect moment in time, and in Galatians tells us, at the perfect moment in time, Jesus was born into this world. That tells me that our God knows timing and he knows the timing of your story and what really matters in your story. And so your job is to keep holding on to the promises of God. Your job is to be able to say, okay, Jesus, you made these promises, you're going to keep them. And I may not see them yet today, but I'm, I'm trusting that you're going to bring them to pass. Uh, some of the promises Jesus said very clearly, I will never leave you. I can't tell you the number of times I've held on to that promise. Okay, Jesus, <laughs> I feel pretty alone right now. But I'm claiming the promise that you will never leave me. I need you to be near right now. Or those times when you feel purposeless and you feel like my life is so insignificant, nobody notices me. Jesus says, I promise you, if you abide in the vine, Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. That's a promise of Jesus. You will bear much fruit. Another promise of Jesus, he said, your joy will be made complete. 
How many times, if you go back in your mind to the, to the chart that I showed in the beginning, you feel like you have these moments of, oh my goodness, I can conquer the world. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And then the very next day, <laughs> you're, you're just, I can't even get out of bed today. What happened? Dear God, are, are you even real? And you just, the cycle, and you're just exhausted by it. Claim the promise today. Jesus says, your joy will be made complete. It'll be just made complete. Or what about those you've seen some friends who have just fallen into hard times spiritually? And you say, oh my goodness, they, they're, they're such... They're so filled with sin, there's no way God can ever accept them. And you've lost the heart of grace. You know another promise of Jesus? He says, anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. Later in the New Testament, we learn that his grace is sufficient for all of us. You cannot have a dark enough past or a dark enough present to overcome the light of Jesus Christ. Or what about the promise of this? Jesus saying, my peace I give you. That's what I love about Christmas. Pastor Paul earlier said, I, I love Christmas. This season is so beautiful. And I think where, for me, why I would agree for my own life as well is just the peace that I feel this time of year. Even in the midst of a lonely, dark pandemic where we know these next few months are probably going to get darker. But he promises peace. So I'm going to claim it today. And I'm inviting you to claim it because that's where the hope lies. And that's where the celebration lies. Because frankly, I have come to find that our future is as bright as his promises. And so keep claiming the promises of God. There's thousands of them in scripture. Just re- I dare you this year, just read them. In fact, this, uh, this um, January um, 1, we're going to start the 100-day challenge again. Last year we did the New Testament. This year we're going to do the Old Testament. And we're going to go through the high points of the Old Testament story. And you're going to find tons of promises of God, predictions, prophecies of, of what is to come. It's incredible. And you're going to love it. I, I, we've been working on it for six months now, and man, is it good. It is going to be so rich. And so we have a chance this year to just go through and just study the promises of God and claim them. Because we study Scripture not to just learn how to live as good people, but to learn who God is so that we can hold on to God who is so strong in the midst of the storms and the pandemics of life. And that gives me hope. And as you look at these, I want to just show you these one more time. Just think about what we've studied this morning. Just take a look at these up on the screen. I mean, these are, the, these are what we learn about God because of the Joseph story. Jesus is not afraid of my mess. Because with Jesus, we learn that all things are possible. He takes, nothing is impossible. And that Jesus keeps his promises. You know, I, I know it can feel weary. And it's hard to say, I can really, I can rejoice in the midst of being weary? Absolutely. Chuck Swindoll gave such a beautiful quote years ago that I wrote down. I I actually think about it quite frequently where he said, um, you know, God made the world out of nothing. So until you're nothing, God can make nothing out of you. As you think about being worn down and weary, is that really such a bad thing? Because when you are weak, what does Jesus promise? 
you will be made strong. When you feel last, what will actually happen? You will be made first. It's the upside down kingdom we've talked about so many times. He is so alive and capable. God is not afraid of this pandemic, nor is God slow to act. In fact, you think about, I've been worn down to nothing. I feel like I'm just dirt. I am blah, nothing. Well, how did God make us? <laughs> Out of the dust of the earth. In fact, I wonder if dirt is God's favorite ingredient. You feel like you've been just wiped down to dust. Well, that's where God's about to recreate you in his image in ways he could not have. Had we not gone through the pain of this complicated yet miraculous moment called this pandemic. And so I want to pray over you and ask God to give you a, a sense of hope today so that we as a weary people can rejoice. Lord God Almighty, I thank you for Joseph's story for his honesty to want to run away from it all and yet you intervening and doing the miracle. You bringing the promises to pass and you truly bringing a sense of showing us who you are as a, uh, your character is matchless. You give us the promises to hold on to and that carries us to places only you can take us. And so I thank you that moments like these bring us down to nothing so that you can make something beautiful out of us. And so, God, have our lives yet again today. I pray for any, any soul that is hearing my voice right now who has not yet had the courage to surrender their very soul to you for the very first time, to repent of their sin and say, Jesus, I need a Savior. I pray that they'll have the courage this very moment to say, Jesus, I, I am nothing. Make something out of me. Forgive me of my sins and bring resurrection to my life that is only from you. I pray for many of us, Lord, who have started that journey and have been following you. I pray for just the renewed sense of hope, the renewed sense of celebration to come, that we can be filled with the excitement of what tomorrow brings because of who you are and what you are doing within us this very moment. And so I just lay before you all of our prayers, all of our burdens, all of our exhaustion. And thank you for the miracle resurrection to come. In Jesus' name, amen.